0: Chapter seven of Mount Royal, volume two by Mary Elizabeth Braden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter seven Not the Gods Can Shake the Past. There was a sad, silent week of waiting before the bride set forth upon her bridal tour, robed in deepest mourning. For six days the windows of Mount Royal were darkened, and Leonard and his newly wedded wife kept within the shadow of that house of death almost as strictly as if they had been jewish mourners bound by ancient ceremonial laws whereof the close observance is a kind of patriotism among a people who have no fatherland all the hot-houses of mount royal gave out their treasures white hyacinths and rose-flush cyclamen gardenia waxen camellias faint dijon roses for the adornment of the death-chamber the corridor outside that darkened room had an odor of hot-house flowers the house folded in silence and darkness felt like some splendid sepulchre leonard was deeply depressed by his mother's death more shocked by its suddenness by this discordant note in his triumphant marriage song than by the actual fact this loss having been long discounted in his own mind among the evils of the future christabel's grief was terrible albeit she had lived for the last year in constant fear of this affliction its bitterness was in no wise lessened because it had been long expected never even in her saddest moments had she realized the agony of that parting the cold dull sense of loneliness of dismal abandonment in a loveless joyless world when that one beloved friend was taken from her leonard tried his best to console her putting aside his own sorrow in the endeavor to comfort his bride but his efforts at consolation were not happy for the most part taking the form of philosophical truisms which may be very good in an almanac or as padding for a country newspaper but which sound dull and meaningless to the ear of the mourner who says in his heart there was never any sorrow like unto my sorrow in the low sunlight of the march afternoon they laid mrs tregonell's coffin in the family vault beside the niche where her faithful husband of ten years wedded life took his long last rest there in the darkness the perfume of many flowers mixing with the cold earthy odours of the tomb they left her who had so long been the despotic mistress of mount royal And then they drove back to the empty house, where the afternoon light that streamed in through newly opened windows had a garish look, as if it had no right to be there. The widow's will was of the simplest. She left legacies to the old servants, her wardrobe, with the exception of laces and furs, to Dormer, mementos to a few old friends, two thousand pounds in trust for certain small local charities, to Christabel, all her jewels and books, and to her son, everything else of which she died possessed. He was now, by inheritance from his mother and in right of his wife, master of the Champernowne estate, which, united to the Tregonell property, made him one of the largest landowners in the west of England. Christabel's fortune had been strictly settled on herself before her marriage, with reversion to Leonard in the failure of children. But the fact of this settlement, to which he had readily agreed, did not lessen Leonard's sense of importance as representative of the Tregonells and Champernownes christabel and her husband started for the continent on the day after the funeral leonard fervently hoping that change of scene and constant movement would help his wife to forget her grief it was a dreary departure for a honeymoon tour the sombre dress of bride and bridegroom the doleful visage of dormer the late mrs tregonell's faithful maid whom the present mrs tregonell retained for her own service glad to have a person about her who had so dearly loved the dead they travelled to weymouth Crossed to Cherbourg and thence to Paris, and on without stopping to Bordeaux. Then, following the line southward, they visited all the most interesting towns of southern France: Albi, Montauban, Toulouse, Carcassonne, Narbonne, Montpellier, Nisme, and so the fairy-like shores of the Mediterranean, lingering on their way to look at medieval cathedrals, Roman baths and amphitheatres, citadels, prisons, palaces, aqueducts all somewhat dry as dust and tiresome to leonard but full of interest to christabel who forgot her own griefs as she pored over these relics of pagan and christian history nice was in all its glory of late spring when after a lingering progress they arrived at that brighton of the south it was nearly six weeks since that march sunset which had lighted the funeral procession in minster churchyard and christabel was beginning to grow accustomed to the idea of her aunt's death Nay, had begun to look back with a dim sense of wonder at the happy time in which they two had been together, their love unclouded by any fear of doom and parting. That last year of Mrs. Tregonell's life had been Christabel's apprenticeship to grief. All the gladness and thoughtlessness of youth had been blighted by the knowledge of an inevitable parting, a farewell that must soon be spoken, a dear hand clasped fondly to-day, but which must be let go to-morrow under that soft southern sky a faint bloom came back to christabel's cheeks which had not until now lost the wan whiteness they had worn on her wedding-day she grew more cheerful talked brightly and pleasantly to her husband and put off the aspect of gloom with the heavy crape shrouded gown which marked the first period of her mourning she came down to dinner one evening in a gown of rich lustreless black silk with a cluster of cape jasmine among the folds of her white crape fichu whereat leonard rejoiced exceedingly his being one of those philosophic minds which believe that the two brief days of the living should never be frittered away upon lamentations for the dead you're looking uncommonly jolly bell said leonard as his wife took her seat at the little table in front of an open window overlooking the blue water and the amphitheatre of hills glorified by the sunset they were dining at a private table in the public room of the hotel leonard having a fancy for the life and bustle of the table d'hote rather than the seclusion of his own apartments christabel hated sitting down with a herd of strangers so by way of compromise they dined at their own particular table and looked on at the public banquet as at a stage-play enacted for their amusement there were others who preferred the exclusiveness of a separate table among these two middle-aged men one military both new arrivals who sat within earshot of mr and mrs tregonell that's a fascinating get-up bell pursued leonard proud of his wife's beauty and not displeased at a few respectful glances from the men at the neighbouring table which that beauty had elicited by the by why shouldn't we go to the opera to-night they do traviata none of your wagner stuff but one of the few operas a fellow can understand it will cheer you up a bit thank you leonard you are very good to think of it but i had rather not go to any place of amusement this year that's rank rubbish bell what can it matter here where nobody knows us and do you suppose it can make any difference to my poor mother her sleep will be none the less tranquil i know that but it pleases me to honour her memory i will go to the opera as often as you like next year leonard you may go or stay away so far as i'm concerned answered leonard with a sulky air i only suggested the thing on your account i hate their squalling this was not the first time that mr tregonell had shown the cloven foot during that prolonged honeymoon He was not actually unkind to his wife he indulged her fancies for the most part even when they went counter to his he would have loaded her with gifts had she been willing to accept them he was the kind of spouse who in the estimation of the outside world passes as a perfect husband proud fond indulgent lavish just the kind of husband whom a sensuous selfish woman would consider absolutely adorable from a practical standpoint supplementing him perhaps with the ideal in the person of a lover so far christabel's wedded life had gone smoothly for in the measure of her sacrifice she had included obedience and duty after marriage yet there was not an hour in which she did not feel the utter want of sympathy between her and the man she had married not a day in which she did not discover his inability to understand her to think as she thought to see as she saw religion conscience honor for all these husband and wife had a different standard that which was right to one was wrong to the other their sense of the beautiful their estimation of art were as wide apart as earth and heaven how can any union prove happy how could there be even that smooth peacefulness which blesses some passionless unions when the husband and wife were of so different a clay long as leonard had known and loved his cousin he was no more at home with her than he would have been with undine or with that ivory image which aphrodite warmed into life at the prayer of pygmalion the sculptor more than once during these six weeks of matrimony leonard had betrayed a jealous temper which threatened evil in the future his courtship had been one long struggle of self-repression marriage gave him back his liberty and he used it on more than one occasion to sneer at his wife's former lover or at her fidelity to a cancelled vow christabel had understood his meaning only too well but she had heard him in a scornful silence which was more humiliating than any other form of reproof after that offer of the opera mr tregonell lapsed into silence his subjects for conversation were not widely varied and his present position aloof from all sporting pursuits and poorly provided with the london papers reduced him almost to dumbness just now he was silent from temper and went on sulkily with his dinner pretending to be absorbed by consideration of the wines and dishes most of which he pronounced abominable When he had finished his dinner he took out his cigarette case and went out on the balcony to smoke leaving christabel sitting alone at her little table the two englishmen at the table in the next window were talking in a comfortable genial kind of way and in voices quite loud enough to be overheard by their immediate neighbours the soldier-like man sat back to back with christabel and she could not avoid hearing the greater part of his conversation she heard with listless ears neither understanding nor interested in understanding the drift of his talk her mind far away in the home she had left a desolate and ruined home as it seemed to her now that her aunt was dead but by and by the sound of a too familiar name riveted her attention angus hamley yes i saw his name in the visitor's book he was here last month gone on to italy said the soldier you knew him asked the other dans le temps i saw a good deal of him when he was about town went a to mucker didn't he i believe he spent a good deal of money but he never belonged to an out-and-out fast lot went in for art and literature and that kind of thing don't you know garrick club behind the scenes at the swell theatres richmond and greenwich dinners maidenhead henley lived in a houseboat one summer men used to go down by the last train to moonlit suppers after the play he had some very good ideas and carried them out on a large scale but he never dropped money on cards or racing Rather looked down upon the amusements of the million. By the by, I was at rather a curious wedding just before I left London. Whose? Little Fishkey's. The colonel came up to time at last. Fishkey? Interrogated the civilian vaguely. Don't you know Fishkey? Alias Psyche, the name by which Stella Mayne condescended to be known by her intimate friends during the run of Cupid and Psyche? Colonel Luscombe married her last week at St. George's and i was at the wedding rather feeble of him wasn't it asked the civilian well you see he could hardly sink himself lower than he had done already by his infatuation for the lady he knew that all his chances at the horse guards were gone so if a plain gold ring could gratify a young person who had been surfeited with diamonds why should our friend withhold that simple and inexpensive ornament whether the lady and gentleman will be any the happier for this rehabilitation of their domestic circumstances is a question that can only be answered in the future the wedding was decidedly queer in what way it was a case of vaulting ambition which o'erleaps itself the colonel wanted a quiet wedding i think he would have preferred the registrar's office no church-going or fuss of any kind but the lady to whom matrimony was a new idea willed otherwise so she decided that the nest in st john's wood was not spacious enough to accommodate the wedding guests she sent her invitations far and wide and ordered a recherché breakfast at an hotel in brook street of the sixty people she expected about fifteen appeared and there was a rowdy air about those select few male and female which was by no means congenial to the broad glare of day night birds every one painted cheeks dyed mustachios tremulous hands a foreshadowing of dell trem in the very way some of them swallowed their champagne i was sorry for Fishki, who looked lovely in her white satin frock and orange blossoms but who had a piteous droop about the corners of her lips like a child whose birthday feast has gone wrong i felt sorrier still for the colonel a proud man debased by low surroundings he will take her off the stage i suppose suggested the other naturally he will try to do so He'll make a good fight for it, I dare say. But whether he can keep Fishkey from the footlights is an open question. I know he's in debt, and I don't very clearly see how they are to live. She is very fond of him, isn't she? Yes, I believe so. She jilted Hamley, a man who worshipped her, to take up with Luscombe, so I suppose it was a case of real affection. I was told that she was in very bad health, consumptive. That sort of little person is always dying, answered the other carelessly. It is part of the Métier, the Marguerite Gautier, Drooping Lily kind of young woman. But I believe this one is sickly. Christabel heard every word of this conversation, heard, and understood for the first time that her renunciation of her lover had been useless, that the reparation she had deemed it his duty to make was past making, that the woman to whose wounded character she had sacrificed her own happiness was false and unworthy. She had been fooled betrayed by her own generous instincts her own emotional impulses it would have been better for her and for angus if she had been more worldly-minded less innocent of the knowledge of evil she had blighted her own life and perhaps his for an imaginary good nothing had been gained to any one living by her sacrifice i thought i was doing my duty she told herself helplessly as she sat looking out at the dark water above which the moon was rising in the cloudless purple of a southern night oh how wicked that woman was to hide the truth from me to let me sacrifice my love and my lover knowing her own falsehood all the time and now she is the wife of another man how she must have laughed at my folly i thought it was angus who had deserted her and that if i gave him up his own honourable feeling would lead him to atone for the past wrong and now i know that no good has been done only infinite evil she thought of angus a lonely wanderer on the face of the earth jilted by the first woman he had loved renounced by the second with no close ties of kindred uncared for and alone it was hard for her to think of this whose dearest hope had once been to devote her life to caring for him and cherishing him, prolonging that frail existence by the tender ministrations of a boundless love. She pictured him in his loneliness, careless of his health, wasting his brief remnant of life, reckless, hopeless, indifferent. God grant he may fall in love with some good woman, who will cherish him as I would have done, was her unselfish prayer, for she knew that domestic affection is the only spell that can prolong a fragile life. It was a weak thing, no doubt, next morning, when she was passing through the hall of the hotel to stop at the desk on which the visitor's book was kept, and to look back through the signatures of the last three weeks for that one familiar autograph, which she had such faint chance of ever seeing again in the future. How boldly that one name seemed to stand out from the page! And even coming upon it after a deliberate search, what a thrill it sent through her veins! The signature was as firm as of old— she tried to think that this was an indication of health and strength but later in the same day when she was alone in her sitting-room and her tea was brought to her by a german waiter one of those superior men whom it is hard to think of as a menial she ventured to ask a question there was an englishman staying here about three weeks ago a mr hamley do you remember him she asked the waiter interrogated himself silently for half a minute and then replied in the affirmative was he an invalid not quite an invalid madam he went out a little but he did not seem robust he never went to the opera or to any public entertainment he rode a little and drove a little and read a great deal he was much fonder of books than most english gentlemen do you know where he went when he left here he was going to the italian lakes christabel asked no further question it seemed to her a great privilege to have heard even so much as this There was very little hope that in her road of life she would often come so nearly on her lost lover's footsteps. She was too wise to desire that they should ever meet face to face, that she, Leonard's wife, should ever again be moved by the magic of that voice, thrilled by the pathos of those dreamy eyes. But it was a privilege to hear something about him she had lost, to know what spot of earth held him, what skies looked down upon him. End of chapter 7